0: Another edition of the Agency Podcast. Eugene here in Toronto,
1: and Candy here in Chicago. And I hope you're all ready for our, our cutting-edge analysis of of whatever we talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I'm gonna try to be calm. I've got a pen and paper. You know, what? one thing I've been trying to do is when you are telling me about something, I have a question. I'm trying to write it down. So I can talk about it, you know, without popping in, I'm trying, I'm trying to calm down here, try to be a good listener. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm going to practice my skills today. <laughs> All right. Well, and listen. sometimes I get nervous
0: and hyper, you know? Well, um, here's, I got a question right off yeah. the top. Okay? okay. What, what the heck is the deal with Wordle and is it a cult? I don't know. And guess what? So I thought, Oh, I love puzzles. I love Scrabble. I'll try it. I can't get the
1: page to work. <laughs> it is a cult and they won't let you in they won't let me in i type a word across the top and they know
0: they know the wordle (laughs) database knows that you're in the illuminati and you're not allowed to do wordle if you're in the illuminati
1: so i can get a word in i can type
0: a word in and nothing else happens so all of a sudden like overnight Everybody I know is posting these goofy little diagrams. I right. mean, I'm pretty soon people are going to have them tattooed on their forehead with the well, gray and the orange and the what is it, yeah, green or whatever. Yeah, anyway, all of a sudden, these mysterious little little diagrams are appearing, and people are talking about their wordle, and right. uh, it's scaring the hell out of me.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I noticed it too. I knew right away it was a guessing game, right? I could tell that. And then I thought, oh, well, I love a word puzzle, you know, or I think I do, but it doesn't love me. <laughs> I can't work the, the, the web page at all. And you I know, guess I haven't the tried. Idea of sharing I've declared it.
0: my blog a Wordle-free zone because, you know, <laughs> I really, I don't need a guru. I don't need, uh, I don't need to, to be in a cult. I don't need a chip in my head. And I think, that Wordle, like, first they get you, like, in the word game, right? And then, then there'll be, like, little little socials, little Wordle socials. And, you know, and then you have to, like, get the chip in your head and obey. And right. I'm not I, doing it. Right. I guess I can see. I mean, it's like
1: Sudoku or something. Um, I can see, though, that it must be fun to publish it. And everyone, because it's only one word and it's the same word for everybody. So I suppose ah, it's I that's, see. It's the same word that everyone has solved. So you get the time. So that's
0: why they don't tell you what the damn word was. They just tell you, I got it in like six Correct. guesses or two guesses. And
1: that's, that's why, because it's, then that, that everyone would know what that was, you know? I mean, it's also the possibility that the letters I'm guessing are so wrong that I can't move forward. Is that possible?
0: Well, of course it's possible. I, but I you don't know. know. Or, I or maybe, can't... you know, maybe this whole thing starts off as an innocent little word game. And then it gets to like, what was that that TV series where people were getting shot? Uh, the Squid Game. Maybe it becomes <laughs> oh. like a squid game and like the Wordle <laughs> mandarins are right. there with right. semi-automatic right. weapons right. or something.
1: I, I do want to say though, You know that the word "cult" is an insult. Uh, It's 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 not the right word to use. I I use it myself for humor, and I do think it's funny as well. It's especially funny when you you know you're talking about Martha Stewart or, um, or Wordle as a cult. But in general, it's not a good. It's it's not good to insult people's faith, beliefs, (laughs) sacred practices, and reduce them because they're not Catholic or Islam to. to a uh, Muslim, to uh, I make fun of oh, Catholics
0: and and other religions too. Well,
1: I'm I mean, I'm equal that. opportunity. I'm on saying, that. Yes, you are. Yes, you are.
0: <laughs> I think but yes, I, I it was, does seem like I was talking with friends. Go ahead. I was talking with a certain relative of mine, um, and and I I had said something about the uh, the Catholic Church, and uh, and oh, she, no. she told me. That uh, hell is real, and I better be careful what what I say. (laughs) I told you I'm already in trouble. (laughs) I told you when you drive to Memphis or Tennessee, there's a big billboard,
1: and you've probably seen it. And it's huge black billboard with white letters that says "Hell is real." (laughs) And I wanted to take a picture of it, but I found it on the internet anyway, so I didn't have to. Speaking uh, of hell is real,
0: yes one of our one of our listeners. Uh, suggested that we have a look at Elon Musk's reading list. Oh yeah, oh, Tim, thank you. And yeah, speaking of hell is real. <laughs> now, now, you might say for some people, Elon Musk is a forward-thinking entrepreneur um, who's leading the way to the new, the next century, or or something like that. For other Maybe, people, yeah. he's uh, he's a billionaire asshole in space running so, a de- cult running a cult <laughs> depending on on where you come from but all i'm going to say is that i don't want to be like elon musk and so i'm looking at his reading list with a grain of salt but uh, let's just have a quick look at it see what's on it okay okay all right his number 1 is steve jobs by walter isaacson oh this well, is
1: this his this is his recommended reading list yeah
0: reading list. okay cuz he wants to be like he wants to be uh, remembered in history like steve jobs Okay, Human Compati- Compatible by Stuart Russell. Don't know anything about that. Well, can you describe it for us? No, I, all oh, I have is a list. There's... Oh, I can't damn. describe anything. I only have a oh, list. Oh, shoot. All right. Uh, we have... Can I try uh, and look it up while you talk about it? <laughs> yeah, sure. All right. Um, we have Zero to One by Peter Tell and Blake Masters. Don't know anything about that either. Merchants of Doubt uh, by another couple of people I don't know. Um uh, life 3.0 by Max uh tegmont, something like that. Uh The Big Picture by Sean Carroll, which, which we've was, talked about here. We've talked about, which I still haven't finished. Uh, Lying by Sam Harris. Is that because he wants to practice? Super intelligence by Nick uh Bestrom. And there's The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Wow. So that's it. Those, those oh, are the yeah. nine.
1: Well, I'm not an Adam Smith fan, as no one can be surprised by that. Well, since he was,
0: he was like Mister Joe Capitalism, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. And um, you know, Elon Musk. I guess I'm surprised that he shared that list. I'm sure he reads some other interesting books. I suppose really? this. What would this list tell us? Okay, so the. If he actually
0: if, reads, he may not have read any of
1: these. Well, he's on the spectrum. He may have. He may have staff that reads for him. Well, I think he synopsis. probably reads. I, I think that he reads, he's on the spectrum. And so I think he's an avid reader. Um, he has, uh, um, uh, he's on a low level of autism, I believe. And um, I think he's a very fascinating person. Of course we do. He's definitely interesting. Um, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't love the list. I, I was hoping for a little bit more surprises. Mm. Um, it seemed like it might be
0: business oriented. Business business, and uh, strongman oriented.
1: Strongman or oh, I love that. Yeah, like Steve Jobs, like,
0: like Mr. I am the most intelligent guy.
1: Right, right. Okay, so here's the zero to one book. The description on Amazon says, uh, by New York Times bestseller, Um, if you want to build a better future, you must believe in secrets. Mm -hmm. That's very uh, um, anti-Illuminati. The great secret of our time is that there are still uncharted frontiers to explore and new inventions to create. I don't know if that's a secret. In Zero to One, legendary entrepreneur and investor Peter Thiel.
0: (laughs) I'm glad I'm not the only one who can't pronounce the authors on the list.
1: Right. Shows how we can find singular ways to create those new things. Thiel begins with the contrarian premise that we live in an age of technological stagnation, even if we're too distracted by shiny mobile devices to notice. Information technology has improved rapidly, but there is no reason why progress should be limited to computers or Silicon Valley. Progress can be achieved in any industry in any area of business. It comes, I'm already like yawn. You know what, I don't like the word, I think I've said this before, so I'm going to repeat myself. I don't like the word progress. Mm. And I don't like the word um, product. Like, you know, the thing with product
0: um, is something you put in your hair.
1: Right. And I do, oh, use, yeah. I, I was,
0: it was a mess this morning. I had to put product in. I,
1: like, I do use it sometimes, but you know what? It's funny when um you
0: think I, I use it in my beard sometimes when my beard gets too long, it yes. gets really out of control and it's like, it's hard to eat. So I, yeah. I'll use a little product.
1: Yeah, I use product in my hair for sure. But I meant um, that product I'm fine with. I think it's as you know, you hear about talking about artwork as a product or something that Mm. might, I start to bristle, right? Even film, Mm. I'll start to bristle. And the thing is, of course, it's a product. I get that. It's just that I would like to hear a bit more artsy talk about it, uh, more creative talk about it. And I realize it's big business. But um, so the idea of progress is, I don't believe in progress. I absolutely, there's no progress. To me, I still, I, you know, I've talked about this, that, you know, of course, the people that lived 70,000 years ago had the same brain we have and the same kinds of ways of their brain working. They just told stories and told shared information. And they they they
0: had less time to figure out how to make the trappings of our current civilization.
1: Well, I think that's a myth. They had all the time in the world because they lived a very um, leisure-based lifestyle. They hunted and had enough food.
0: They could just go find
1: food very easily.
0: Oh, so they Um, just didn't have any interest in it.
1: They did all kinds of inventions. We wouldn't be here if they hadn't invented things and and done things. They could have fire. They could
0: cook food, right? Right. So they have some inventions. And then if they continue to invent things, then they'll have more inventions. And eventually, one would think that they would have all the inventions.
1: Right. Well, they do have all the inventions. We have many inventions right now. Nothing has changed from the time that they were, that people a hundred thousand years ago, were sitting around a fire talking about the uh, origins of life and the meaning of life and how to get a better blade to kill an animal. We still are doing that. And I think that well, we talk about it. On it Zoom. Yeah. If you frame it as, um, Invention being um, the defining I, point. Of I, I, I got
0: you. I'm giving you a. Hard yeah, yeah, time. yeah, yeah. Okay, All right, as devil. long as I know. I am being the devil. I... <laughs> you know why? Because right before this podcast, uh-huh. did I brew my Earl Grey tea? No. Oh. Really? I made instead. I made a cup of mm-hmm. a cup of uh, high-test Vietnamese coffee with oh. sweetened condensed milk. So you're revving
1: up high. And it
0: has got about enough caffeine for about nine people. So Mm. believe me, my FM voice is not going to make an appearance in this (laughs) podcast. Oh, yeah. I
1: want to try and get my calm myself down here. I remember I'm going to be calm. It's good, though. (laughs) Yeah. So... I, I, the list seemed a little bit underwhelming to me. I, I really yeah, wanted a surprise. Uh, yeah,
0: it's a, it looks like it's mostly business books. Uh, that one, uh, Life 3.0, I looked that up because that had a nice title. Uh, that's mm-hmm. about uh, human beings in the in the age of artificial intelligence. Uh, we've talked about that. It's about time somebody, somebody put that in context, and I'm sure there's other books too oh three point what was it called A uh, life 3.0 artificial oh, yeah. intelligence and its impact on the future of life on earth and beyond it's being human in the age of artificial intelligence
1: right well you know i i've got to somehow become an expert on post humanism and transhumanism <laughs> because i'm on a round table talking about that well, <laughs> I'm like, as go. soon as as soon as i figure out what that is i'll be do uh, what i do make it uh, up. i'll be an expert <laughs> So, Life 3.0 does sound kind of interesting. I want to see what the the write up here is on Amazon. Let's see what we got here. We've got um, in this authoritative and eye opening book, Mans Take describes and illuminates the recent path breaking advances in artificial intelligence and how it will is poised to overtake human intelligence. Yeah, I see. I already am upset now. Um, how will AI affect crime, war, justice, jobs, society and our very sense of being human? The rise of AI has the potential to transform our future more than any other technology. And there's nobody better qualified or situated to explore that future than Max Tegmark, of course. an MIT professor who helped mainstream research on how to keep it AI beneficial. Well, I'm glad somebody's doing that. You're right. How can we grow our pro- pro- prosperity through automation without leaving people lacking income or purpose? This idea, I, as long as the prosperity is for everyone, you need to add that. You can't say prosperity. You want to say for everyone. <laughs> it should be uh, But he words. doesn't mean
0: for everyone. He means right. prosperity for a, a, a smaller elite group. I right, think.
1: Right, I, I actually might read that book when I get five minutes to read something different. Um, I'm deep into my reading. I'm enjoying myself so, so much. Good. I'm reading about Inigo Jones. Do you know who Inigo Jones is? No. Well, he's a fantastic artist from England around 1610, 1605 to 1640. And he basically... Um, started out in set design, it's and, and he's an architect. And he has and a great name, by the way.
0: Indigo is a great first name. Indigo, Indigo, Indigo. Indigo. Oh, it's Indigo, yeah. not Indigo. Okay.
1: No, Indigo. Both are, I think, are really cool names. Excellent names. Um, yeah, Indigo Jones, he basically, um, back in the day, people like Vitruvius, he really looked forward, to, uh, looked up to Vitruvius, who wrote about architecture. An architect wasn't um, just somebody who made buildings and that's all they studied. You had to know everything you had to know physics, you had to know uh, medicine, you had to know poetry, you had to know um, philosophy, you had to be so um, multidisciplined, disciplined um, and then you could be called an architect and then you could design buildings. Um, but you also were designing streets and, 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 and uh, sets. So Inigo Jones, what he did was they used to have this whole thing, it's basically, you'll find this interesting, it's a precursor to opera So opera came out of the mask festivals that people were doing in the Renaissance where it was an immersive environment where you'd walk in and everybody's dressed in costumes and doing role-playing. So role-playing isn't just from Dungeon and Dragons. Role-playing actually probably comes from the mask culture. That sounds
0: more interesting than opera to me because it's participatory. Oh,
1: yes, I think so too. I agree. And there was music, food. And I know
0: even in in earlier opera, uh, it was expected that people would come and go. And it wasn't like, today yes. we go to the opera, we pay our ticket, we go in, we find our seat, we sit down, shut up and listen and go home. That's right. Have a no, drink this, afterwards. No, Though I right. think in, in earlier opera too, it was much more um, part- participatory. And yeah, um, you come in and out, you can go have dinner, you come back in.
1: Yeah, and that would have been that. why it would be, um, oh, I've got a little bit of water in my ear or something. Um, that would be why it was like um, opera came from it. So everything was designed and created to be entertaining and informative. One of the things they would do in this story is they would have in this party is that even the food was allegorical. Everything was allegorical, your costume, your set design, uh, and the food. And um, Inigo Jones would um, basically create the, all the sets. And he brought to England. 200 years of art history and he and he um expressed it and educated people in england in 40 years
0: very cool
1: yeah it's pretty impressive It's, it's it's very impressive it's very interesting um regarding extended mind theory uh art history um transmitting art and he did it by completely plain old copying everything he saw in europe so he made trips to italy And France, and their whole point was to stealthily bring this philosophy of the European Renaissance and art history by stealth to England. And they had to do it by stealth. Do you know why? Why? Because England was a terrorist state. Um, One of the reasons is, one of the reasons was it's a terrorist state because it was written, it was run by fundamentalist Protestants who were anti-Catholic. And a lot of the European art and study um, even in Catholicism in Europe, they had to frame it within the um, Catholic experience, but they were much more interested in the um, philosophy of Egypt and ancient Greece and Rome than they mm-hmm. were per se in Jesus's story. It's not that they didn't believe in Jesus. They were finding a way to amalgamate it all, almost like fusion cooking, right? They were fusing all of these things because they felt that there was a, a Darth that we, they had let go of all this great information from the Greeks. And from Egypt, and they wanted to bring it in. Why not make chocolate baklava?
0: (laughs) Right? Why not indeed? Yes. Why not indeed? Yes. So um, they,
1: and they fused it. So they did it. it, And one, the other reason why it was supposed to be stealth, and um, something I'm researching is about the science of surprise. Like how surprise teaches us. When we get an aha moment, it really... It, it landmarks information that we get when we're very surprised. So you want to have a reveal, just like all the decorating shows, they have that moment where you see part of how they remodel a house, then they have that big reveal and you're like, ooh, ah. And that's very good for our dopamine and our brain and learning. So anyway, I'm really enjoying Indigo Jones. He's a lot of fun and a oh, great so artist. And he would do things like he would copy buildings, but he'd put three or four of them together. <laughs> So it was like, that's how I guess he got his 40 years, 200 years of art history in 40 years. So that's what I've been reading about. Really, really, I've got a couple of books from the library that have just turned out to be winners. I'll probably try to find them secondhand and own them. They're just so good. Very cool. Yeah. A lot, a lot, a lot of fun.
0: (sighs) And then I've been tempering it with some shows. Did you? uh, Us too. We, you know, we we've been we've been spending many of our evenings watching the first and second season of of Britain's Best Home Cook. I can't get it here. I wish I could. Oh, it's I love this show. You know, I'm not big on the cooking competitions in general, right? Because I don't see cooking as a competition. But Mm -hmm. you know, like the prize is a plate. You know, Mm -hmm. as you know, the American (laughs) cooking shows the prize is one million dollars and your own biggest restaurant in the world in las vegas right right no here it's a plate and a journey and and a journey right and well you get and, to hang
1: out with other people that you have things in with. all these
0: nice people who mm. all like each other just mm-hmm. like just like you know the british baking show mm-hmm. they're the same vibe right yeah and in fact mary berry is one of the judges mm. and she's having so much fun she is a total delight on this show <laughs> and I had one problem with it. I had one problem. And that is that that I didn't understand what a pudding was. Oh, Because for me and -hmm. perhaps for you. Uh, I think I know what a pudding is. Pudding is something like it tastes like butterscotch and it's sort of like the consistency of yogurt and it's hot typically, although you Mm -hmm. can get snack packs and have them in the Mm -hmm. fridge. Um, But but no, they you know they would they would have like a, a challenge for the, the cooks, and mm-hmm. they would say you have to have one main and one pudding, and it's like what the hell? And then they bake a cake. <laughs> no, no, you're you're making my head explode. But like the cake is not a pudding. But mm. it turns out that uh, a pudding is not what we thought a pudding might be. Have you got a recipe for us? Uh, a pudding is. A pudding is um, in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. It's got a completely different meaning than in North America. Right. So it's a type of food that could either be a dessert or a savory. Mm -hmm. That's part of the main meal. Now for us, it's, it's, we would call it a custard or they would call what we call a pudding. They would call a custard. Right. Or maybe a mousse. Or flan. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, But. But in, in the United Kingdom, pudding describes sweet and savory, mm-hmm. and it, it describes things that are cooked by steaming, mm-hmm. unless they aren't. Correct. Right? Now, so, I know, yeah, sorry, I know what a pudding is, because when my
1: mom was, um, I think she was 18, and she went and lived in England for two years. Um, very adventurous, and that's where she was a telephone operator in, in the UK and came back to Winnipeg and was a telephone operator for years and years um, with the Winnipeg Telephone Company. But yes, I make a wicked pudding, a wicked one, and I, I haven't done it for a long time. I was just talking about it, and I kind of was repulsing my American coworkers and friends because they're, like, grossed out to eat. Like a, It's like a
0: fruitcake almost. It's, well, a, a, it's a step before a fruitcake. It seems that in regular parlance and maybe we should we should get uh, our british correspondents to uh, to to help us define this right. uh, but but you know it seems as if pudding is used to mean dessert in a really broad sense and a cake is a pudding right and I, it's
1: not right well okay let me just i'm going to go by memory here basically the memory i would do and i got all in, organic ingredients i went through a major uh, pudding phase. And I basically um, grated a potato, grated a carrot, and then like a cup of flour, a couple of eggs, brandy, and then the most not the dried fruit, those little bright red, green things that you see in a lot of kind of commercial fruit cakes, I went and got all the organic dried apricots and dried berries, and put about a cup of those. in. so it's a very small recipe. It makes about through two cups and you can buy a steamer and all kinds of uh a, a, a tools that make specifically uh a pudding and i would put it in a bowl you know those um great big huge bowls that are um, ceramic and they're often they're for bread you can get a huge size one it's about two feet across and you make bread and it's a porcelain ceramic and it's beige and white on the inside. Yes, I'm yeah. sure your I'm yeah, sure yeah. your your family had them. Yeah, you can get them in all sizes, and the smaller one is for the pudding, and you put it inside a, a pot like a double boiler and cover it. Ah. and you and it's got a carrot and raisins. It's bizarre, and you put spices in it. And you're right; you can go from oh, savory to sweet. And there's bread sweet.
0: puddings. We have, would have in New Orleans.
1: Correct. There um, you okay. go. That is I, related to the French recipe
0: for pudding, which it probably is what influenced England. I've just come across a little article yeah. here because we research constantly here on the agency including as we speak. Yes, like I said that 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 deep cutting edge analysis. That's right. <laughs> okay, so on a website called Vox, I I've, I've come up with an article. It's it's called British desserts explained for Americans Confu- mm. confused by the Great British baking show. <laughs> I'll just read a bit. Yeah, As Americans wake up to the wonders of the Great British Baking Show, they're also realizing somebody else. Nobody on this side of the Atlantic Ocean really knows what any of these desserts are. (laughs) Biscuit's episode of the Great British Bake Off makes me want an explainer of what British people mean by a biscuit, according to Matthew Iglesias. Mm -hmm. And then Ruth Graham writes in, I've watched too many episodes of the Great British Baking Show to still not know what British people mean by pudding. So... To accompany your Thanksgiving viewing of the Great British Baking Competition of Our Time, here's a guide to what they're actually talking about. Uh, the differences between what British people and Americans mean by pudding and biscuit might sound silly, but underlying those differences are long standing cultural divergences that explain not just why the two nations call food different things, but why they eat so differently. So, the two meanings <laughs> of pudding. Pudding can refer generically. To the sweet final course of a meal, what Americans know as dessert. Because it's the UK, this has class implications. Nancy Mitford, in a famous essay comparing the speech of upper class Britons with everyone else, categorized pudding as used by the elite and sweet as used by the proletariat. Mm. Ah, Interesting. But Mm. a pudding can also be a specific dish. And a British pudding still isn't in the same isn't the same as an American one. American puddings are closer to what the Brits would call custard. Ah, as I said, uh, a British pudding is a sweet is a dish, savory or sweet, that's cooked by being boiled or steamed in something, a dish, a piece of cloth, or even an animal intestine. The earliest puddings, in this sense of the word, were sausages, black mm-hmm. pudding. A type of sausage made with pig's blood is sometimes included in a traditional English breakfast. Other puddings are sweet, such as spotted dick, a sort of steamed cake with currants that's barely sweet, and, like many puddings, flavored with suet or beef fat Mm -hmm. rather than butter. Jam roly-poly or roly-poly pudding is traditionally steamed. It consists of a pastry made with suet, spread with jam, and rolled up. And just to make things a bit more confusing, some dishes are referred to as puddings that are sometimes baked, but formerly were boiled or steamed. I think the yes. top of my head is going to explode. <laughs> the best example is sticky toffee pudding, a date mm. cake with mm. caramel sauce. Yes, please. Yeah. That's traditionally steamed, but is now often baked. I believe I would like to try one of each. Well, they made the sticky toffee pudding on an episode of the Great British Baking Show. Oh, and, and also on British back, best home cook, you know it, you know oh,
1: it. Oh, okay, yeah, no, doesn't that sound amazing? Um, oh, I just I I for, yeah, and so I when I was vegetarian, I didn't put suet in. I would still probably put butter, but I put butter in mine. Um, but uh, oh my God, it's still amazing. But nobody I know likes it, so I don't make it. And I didn't like it as a child. I thought it was repulsive.
0: So um, beyond the definitions, yeah, this show is totally delightful. Uh, one of the yes. things I really like about it is, whereas they have the home cooks on the American-based shows, uh, they'll have home cooks, but they're expected to make restaurant food. You oh, I, I mean? see. They're expected yes, to elevate the home dish into something that that's like restaurant fare, fine dining fare. But in this show, it's like about home cooks doing home cooking. And so they make all kinds of stuff like they cook for their families at home. Mm. And it's really kind of nice. They're oh, nice people it. making nice family food. It's mm. just a totally wholesome, delightful show. Mm. I was completely taken in by it. And I watched all of it. Well, Sheila and I both we watched all of it. And uh, it was delight and delightful. Plus, I learned a little bit about the language of the Brits and pudding. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know,
1: uh, that also ties into my whole Indigo Jones thing because the food was so important um, and it was symbolic. I'm talking about that in my paper. Um, allegories for um, philosophy and for knowledge. You know, and then I, I I got a Renaissance, I got a cookbook this week, which I'm not going to ke- keep. I'm going to send it to my sister, but it's really, really adorable. It's the Shakespeare cookbook and it's quite adorable. It's got beautiful artwork in it and it's got you know, in general, it was helpful. But the most helpful part was that he, no, he, the author, It's a, I think they're partners. It's two people writing it. They noticed that Prince Hal calls Falstaff a chew-it. And a chew-it is a little pastry stuffed with meat, spices, and fruit. Oh, because you and chew it. I don't know why it's called chew-it. It's spelled c h e w a et but the point being that Ah. Falstaff is Shakespeare's best character one of his I mean I love the women in Shakespeare too but of the most developed and affectionate and intelligent and wise characters it's Falstaff so that's the absolute proof of what I'm trying to demonstrate is that the food was an allegory for the outer shell Uh.
0: and knowledge inside so in in Shakespearean cooking Mm then does it use only ingredients that have a poetic quality and, um, and slightly, slightly archaic English usage? I would
1: reframe this and invert what you just (laughs) said. And I would say all of our food has that, but we don't focus on that. You know, when I worked at old town school, Uh. Music, I approached my boss. I really wanted to make, you know, how you've got all the folk music and you take a class there and you find out all the history of things. I wanted to make the menu. Um, anthropological i want to have it like yeah thank you thank you Uh, i really really wanted to make it so that folk food
0: and what happened i totally get it in the folk right of course what else would you eat in a folk
1: hello hello yeah all, all food has a narrative all food from you know everything from from the most bland food, of course, that's why I like Margaret Visser, is she talks about that kind of mysticism, and the history of why we eat certain food with certain things. And it's all based on common food that we eat every day. Um, She develops all of that and gets back in time on that. Um, And I think that's really one of the fun things is the anthropology of food. And um, yeah, so all of our food, our ordinary food, what we're forgetting is to remember the magic in daily life. And that history, we don't walk around thinking about the importance of pudding (laughs) it has a massive symbolic quality often associated with um high holidays and sacred days so you would do that because it's quite labor intensive you wouldn't make that pudding every day you would make it maybe at easter or um you know a solstice time period yeah of course so a lot of our foods are associated with mystical events or
0: sacred Times well, sure, but that's, I mean, that's uh, I, I think true today too. Well, that's what uh, I said. I'm saying, okay,
1: yes, I'm inverting what you said was okay. all Renaissance food based on ritual? No, what it all food is based on that, it still is today. It's whether or not we acknowledge that, and that's also an incredible way that I would tie it into environmentalism and um, and um, recycling or conservation. To me, conservation is focusing on that in the Wendell in the Wendell Berry sense of it.
0: You know, and, one, uh, one example yeah. of, of of what you're talking about, I think, yeah. is something that Sheila and I make once a year, and that is Posca. and Posca mm. is Ukrainian for Easter, there and uh, it's East. So it's Easter bread. Now we are Orthodox Catholics, and uh-huh. um, we don't we don't put the religious symbology on top of our pasca and we but uh traditionally uh you would bring your pasca to the church to be blessed so your oh. family could be blessed on on the most sacred day of the year right, uh, right. but uh we still make the pasca because what we like about it is once a year it gives us a chance to be social with food we make mm-hmm. several loaves and we give them to our neighbors mm-hmm. and uh it has some vague relationship to a religious tradition for us but it, although it's totally secular in right in, right in our in our world it has that that meaning and that's not lost on us either right right definitely and i mean
1: religion is just a, another word for for meaning for applying something um respect to something you're doing really can be can also we're not talking about fundamentalism? That's a whole different topic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> hey, we watched two satires this week. Oh my like, or, God! Who are you? Yes, yeah, so, or two. <laughs> I know, really, or two films that you might call satires. Some people might argue that they aren't satires, but mm-hmm. I mean, I think they're usually called satires, and so I'm going to stick with that. And the one of them, one of those films, is from 1979, and it is as close to being a perfect film as I think I know. It's a small mm. film. It stars Peter Sellers and Shirley MacLaine. And it's being there.
1: Oh, great Based on the, novel
0: by, the 1970 novel by Jersey Kaczynski. It's mm-hmm. 1979 satire directed by Hal Ashby. And all I can say is it's perfect. It is perfect. I agree with you. not the that perfect a, film.
1: It really is. And what's interesting about satire is that it, at some point, <clears throat> we embrace it we don't years later or you know is satire telling us not to be something or is it telling us oh exactly. wow accept this I mean I think all great literature helps normalize things for lack of a better word of normalized um yeah so oh I love it to me Chansey e Gardner was what who Peter Sellers plays for me he was never ironic he was never satirical he was I took him at face value as actually well, uh, that's that's reality the that yeah. is
0: that is the thing yes i mean he is chance the gardener he's not yes. chauncey gardener and but he magically transforms to, Cha- to chauncey <laughs> when he's his context changes
1: yes. yes right and he
0: needs a new house with a big garden that he can look after that's and right. what the- i mean and chance says the most wonderful things about life describing the only thing he knows in this world which is well besides watching tv and that's growing a garden right and uh and, geez, he plays it so straight. Yeah, absolutely straight. And then at the end, they have an outtake where he just can't get a line out without without. You tell to Raphael that motherfucker. <laughs> that <Yeah>. asshole.
1: <laughs> yes. You tell Raphael he's an asshole. Yeah, see, I mean, I haven't watched that movie in years, but there's definitely things that
0: stick out. The other oh, thing I that know. sticks out. And when he tries to change the channel in life with his little channel changer, oh, I totally love that. He I changes do the channel and nothing happens. I know it's so
1: sweet, and then he he goes into that that mansion, which I believe is Xanadu,
0: where Hearst lived. I believe they filmed in there. I'm not. Um, I think I, that I, it's in uh, it's in North Carolina. It's the largest private home in Vanderbilt. America. Oh, that's a Vanderbilt. I don't know if it's a Vanderbilt. I'll, oh. I'll have to look it up. But I did read that it was the largest private home in North America that they uh, that they filmed it in. And I Okay, well, let's North look Carolina. that up
1: at some point. But um, I've been to the Vanderbilt Mansion. That's why I'm kind of um, excited. I went there when I was doing part of my documentary, whereas meeting people I knew online. And one of the things we did in our book club was take a tour of the Vanderbilt Mansion. And um, the other part I like, so he goes into that building. He's never been in a building like that before because he kind of lived a very hermetic life beforehand. He's almost like the wolf feral child. It's that's the motif is this like right. a fish out of water. Right. And that he was raised like by wolves or something or his, or his but uh, but in fact
0: by a rich, guy, by a rich guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Who had a garden, brought but him food is... and let him garden. But that it would was be Arcane... our
0: Estate, by the way, the largest private home in America oh, in Biltmore Asheville, State. North Carolina.
1: Oh, maybe that's where I went then. I don't know. Yeah, really in right in Asheville,
0: the, the, uh, the busking capital of America.
1: That's right. I did go to that tour and I don't know why I thought it was Vanderbilt. I got screwed up, um, but okay. So the rich house with the garden is really an Arcadian mar- motif of back to nature. Right. And that it gives us this purity and, and, um, and vision. And that's why he is so pure because he lived in tune with nature. And so he goes into this big mansion. One part I just remember laughing so hard is that they actually have an elevator in there and they get into the elevator. He goes, this is a very small room. (laughs)
0: It's delightful. (laughs) And I'll still use that in an elevator to this day. And he is so pure. He's so pure of spirit that at one point in the film, he's walking the grounds of this wonderful mansion and there's a pond and he proceeds to just walk on water. Well, that's a very closing scene, isn't it? Yeah it's yeah. um well wow, i have not watched that movie for a long time oh, i know like it was, yesterday i hadn't watched it either and it just sort of came up uh, sheila said you know hey being there is odd. so we we turned it on and every second of it was as wonderful as i remember watching it i believe i believe i watched it just as we started university uh, i yeah. first saw it and i saw sense. it again in university and haven't <clears> seen it since and, you know, folks, if you uh, if you have a chance to see being there, if you haven't seen it in a long time, just watch it. It's just going to it's just going to improve your day. Well, you're making me think of a couple of things and I hope I can remember them. Um, is that? Uh, yeah,
1: it's how does it feel relevant for today? Did it have any meaning for you today?
0: Well, of, of course it did, because he's he becomes very involved in American politics, which is uh, pervasive today. And you know the silliness of American politics in a in a way comes comes through because uh, they're all looking for solutions, yeah. and he only offers comments about growing his garden, <laughs> yeah. you know, and they of course jump on it and yeah yeah,
1: um it, what it reminded me of too is that um, you know, we might people who we know of uh, uh, maybe near our uh, kind of artsy or whatever the people we know, or maybe went to the same kind of hangout. There's a lot of people that have seen being there. What I am very fascinated is by young people who might see being there now and how they would feel about seeing this movie. And it reminded me that some of the young people at um, where Stag works, they've really just discovered Tammy Faye Baker. Remember I watched Tammy Faye, The Eyes yes. of Tammy Faye, a couple of months ago? Um, fantastic movie, taught me different things about her, but they're really intrigued by that. And I just love that, that that, that documentary brought her and that era into their... Um, into their focus. Yes. Just because like for,
0: for people of our generation who owned a television set, mm. um, Tammy Faye was somebody who was on TV at any right. time you turned it on. Right. You can find Tammy Faye and Jim Baker. Right.
1: And I think there's just a kind of a purity because they're not embedded in the, um, in the bad parts of, of that storyline uh, at the time that, that there was a kind of, um, you know, we definitely watched that as being something to do after nightclubbing. Right. Uh, sort of funny you're drunk and let's put on the religious shows. Um, But the um, second part is, is that that maybe young people don't have that. They're not bringing that kind of baggage to it. They're not cynical about it in the same way that the, um, you know, the script for the counselor by Cormac McCarthy got leaked about at least a year before it was made. And on the forum, a massive argument. It doesn't
0: surprise me because there is a, a cowbell of, uh, of Cormac McCarthy fans out there after every possible uh, leak available
1: well yeah I, I i obviously this wouldn't have been a, a leak from a cormac mccarthy fan it must have been an oversight accidentally by a production company or maybe someone in, pissed off at the production company oh i, I thought it, i thought it was maybe
0: the folks from the cormac mccarthy no, forum where they don't have work. any
1: access or knowledge of any inside goods on on um publishing or anything with mccarthy um, most of them most of the participants hear at the same time, the public hears. It's a public forum. It's nothing to do with Cormat McCarthy. But what happened was one of them found this leaked script that was showing up on the internet and shared the link. And I, you know, all of us immediately downloaded it and read it. And the argument that it sued was that it couldn't possibly be written by Cormat McCarthy. Mm-hmm. So you had about 20 people and only two or three of us thought it was mccarthy and everyone else thought it was some joke or bullshit or hadn't been tuned up or or that he had hit rock bottom so i didn't think it was that bad i thought oh there's some this'll be interesting if this is a real there's, movie or there's not there's
0: always the possibility that it wasn't written by who we think it was written by right that is true i just i always remember my childhood you know i was a fan of the hardy boys Uh, set of novels which were written by franklin w dixon who Mm -hmm. who also wrote the hardy boys detective handbook which i studied because i planned on being a detective at that time. (laughs) exactly it turns out that the hardy boys were written by a bunch of hacks for like by the word and not only that some of the same titles are multiple books because they updated them. They <laughs> sure. got you know new plots, new stories, new characters for the next generation. And mm. you know, and they updated know they, the clothing. I don't know if they if they focus group that stuff or what, but there never was a Franklin W. Dixon, which of course led me to think that the Harry Potter was the same thing, you know. All of a sudden, in rapid succession, you had Like how many seven or eight Harry Potter books came out, each of them five or 600 pages? What human being could write that fast?
1: A human being who
0: has a rags to riches story, that's who. And I, of course, began to think that the author of the Harry Potter books also didn't exist, was like an actress, Um, like Franklin W. Dixon was, well, uh, he wasn't even an actor because they didn't even trot him out.
1: Right, but J.K. Rowling did not write all those books in one year. It took 10, 15 years. They didn't publish them all at once. They ah, published well, them over a series. There's always a series. an answer, isn't there? Well, I, I appreciate that you are saying that. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying that, that actually they didn't come out at, at once. They were staggered. They were written and staggered over a period of 10 or 15 hmm. years. And when she started writing the story, she had written an outline. She knew exactly where the plot was from from the very beginning mm-hmm. and where it would go into seven uh, into seven sections um and you know we've talked about this with Shakespeare where the, the conspiracy is that he didn't write all those plays for me that is an insult to the idea that we're not capable of achieving that and human beings are capable of achieving that we might be but,
0: capable but that doesn't doesn't mean we shouldn't be suspicious I totally agree about being Question authority. Absolutely. Just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean that nobody's <laughs> following me.
1: Right. But uh, he, with someone like J.K. Rowling or or Shakespeare, I don't see any reason to apply that thing that you found out that big business from a childhood, beloved childhood story and franchise or product, if you will, you found out that it was a product being sold to
0: kids. It's like uh, I the, that the author didn't exist. Correct correct but they I understand made that. him up they correct. made him up and sold sold the idea to kids that it was written by a real human being one person mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i was shattered oh. man i know well, i guess shattered, they're just gonna use i say i'm still yes.
1: still recovering <laughs> so basically it was written by probably about 10 people
0: who or more worked, i don't
1: know who worked together to create a pseudonym or more people no, for- they didn't
0: work together they just you know they submitted You just submitted oh i see what you're saying they followed the format enough that it would seem consistent that's right yeah you know they okay. might say okay we need one about this 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 and this mm-hmm. we need one where chet does this we mm-hmm. need one where frank and joe go camping and somebody cranks it out right
1: mm-hmm. um yeah i mean yeah. i have mixed anyway, feelings i'm
0: <laughs> not i'm not going to go any further down <laughs> down the jk rowling conspiracy we don't need to go there right
1: right no no i understand that it's and sort sure, of run its are...
0: course anyway
1: well, the funny part is, is that when we look at TV shows now, part of the reason they're so good, and we've talked about this before, is because they have a staff of 20 people writing Breaking Bad or Succession. It's not one person writing Succession. It's You have got you can't go wrong when you've got uh, 20 people with all their various experiences and perspectives. Which is very smart, right? You,
0: you pump a lot more money and effort and resources at it. And right. It's much more better writers, than, that one writer is apt to have a bad year. Or a bad week or whatever.
1: Also, it may be it's unfair to assume to put all that pressure onto one person. Oh, Plus, look at it this way. You've hired more writers. <laughs> more writers have a good
0: job. And that's a great thing. So we've been yeah. digressing here because we were have talking we? about satire. And, and we did see another satire I wanted to talk oh, about. Oh, yeah. And I know you've seen this one too. I've mm-hmm. seen it a few times. Mm-hmm. And it's another film which is very, very close to being perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from 2000. Uh, it's a mockumentary directed by Christopher Guest and it's best in show about Crazy the Mayflower me. Dog Show. Five yeah. dogs and their owners. <laughs> yeah. And it is so delightful. It is um, so delightful. It it stores, uh the wonderful Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy. I mean, what, what can you say? They're just They're so incredible. So fantastic. Christopher Guest is in it. Uh, and one of my favorites, you know, watching it again for the empty Cud, Fred Willard mm. played uh, Buck La- Buck Laughlin, and he was, he was like a football announcer who they got to announce the the dog show. And every time he opened his mouth, I was roaring on the floor laughing. It <laughs> Everything he said was hilarious to me. It was just so wonderful. Um, And Fred Mm -hmm. Willard, for those who don't know about Fred Willard, the first time I saw Fred Willard, he was the second banana on Fernwood Tonight, the Martin Mull vehicle, Mm -hmm. uh, which was the sequel to, it came out of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Mm -hmm. Remember that? Yes, I do. Where there was Martin Mull was Barth Gimble, but he Mm -hmm. had his brother Garth Gimble, who I believe... Died after hiding in, in a closet and getting impaled with the branch <laughs> of an artificial Christmas tree limb. That's right. That's right. So Fred Willard was was the second banana and was just as funny on Fernwood Tonight as um as he is in this. And it is just it is just done so delightfully straight up. And I understand that a lot of the dialogue in the Christopher Guest films is improvised. Yes, and yes. It's that's the only way you could, you could, I think, achieve the wonderful purity of those characters.
1: They are pretty amazing. And you know, I was watching it. I, I I watched it the other night when you said you were watching it and I could, it's funny because I can see them improving, but not in a bad way at all. I can just, they're so magnificent and they're so good at it. Sometimes you can just, but all of a sudden you can see how they're, They're working on this idea. Catherine O'Hara is a freaking genius in this movie. Her expressions that she has to deal with are incredible that she gives us. She's so sincere. That's the other thing. Remember A Fish Called Wanda? Yes. One of the greatest things about um, this kind of satire and comedy is when you let the actors be sincere. Just totally believe. They're almost like method acting. Their character. And that's what makes it so successful and beautiful as we get that emotional delivery. It's so weird. All these years later, however much I laugh so hard about Best in Show, it has become almost like not a satire for me, where it's absolutely beloved characters. Yes, of course. That's the funny thing about
0: it. Yeah, which That's is what a fine to... line between our rea- our collective reality and satire. It's so and... close and, and they go for the closeness.
1: They do go for the closeness, but it's also part of human nature that um one thing we do is we embrace we embrace satire as we we adapt it and accept. That's what I was trying to say about great art helps us accept anonymously or 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 flawed people or humorous people, or, you know, crazy people, or maybe what we perceive as dumb people, where I think that this, you know, it's almost like Parks and Rec, you know? So um, Fred Willard is like a legacy casting as far as I could see, because he makes sure that we know the precedence of where this mockumentary came from, because Martin Mull, of course, was doing a mockumentary. And Mary yeah, Hartman, was, yes. Mary Hartman yeah. was doing a mockumentary.
0: We just didn't call it that. That's right. But and it's so, all the same tradition, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it, it really is a, a thing. And this is what Shakespeare has in his stuff, is that's why it's better to not know history. To read, you should. You don't have to study. It's better not to study Renaissance culture to read Shakespeare. It's better when you come at it as today. And you know, I'm I'm from that camp. Other people will argue you need to know everything. I don't think you do.
0: Do you remember Um, that that brief period in which Fernwood Tonight became America Tonight? No, I I, that was so long ago. I I I don't know that. But they went. They moved to Burbank from the Tri County area. Right, Mm -hmm. they were moving up in the world and. I mean, the show was really over by the time they did that, right? They were trying to to make it into some kind of uh, more mainstream product. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. on one of the very first shows, they had on Anne Murray as a guest. And oh, wow. and she was lip syncing like Snowbird or something. But they have the sound slowed down. Oh, wow. It was so funny. Exactly. Yeah, I bet. Yeah,
1: that to and this good, day, I and good for
0: her for doing that. Good oh, for, for her. being such a good sport. Yes, for being a good sport. That You've is ever, awesome. Have you ever seen the comedian Man Murray? Yes. Oh, she is so delightful. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness gracious. I've seen Man Murray live at a couple <laughs> of uh, kind of gala events. Oh, Come fun. out in... And, and, in her pantsuit and uh, Mm -hmm. her like powder blue pantsuit and lip sync to Snowbird. It's just, (laughs) I mean, it's the stupidest thing, but I could watch it a thousand Mm -hmm. times in a row and Mm -hmm. not get enough. Mm -hmm. Excellent.
1: Oh yeah, no, for uh, not for one. Best in Show is so good. Um, Steven, Christopher Guest is like a fucking, I can't even recognize him. He's so good in that role as the hunter fisherman who, wants to win the dog show. He is so good at it. And then um, I'm so happy for, for Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy with Schitt's Creek and that they got all
0: of those awards, all the recognition. Have you been watching Schitt's Creek? Well, you know, i I've, I've watched almost all of Schitt's Creek. I haven't okay. seen every episode. Right, right, um, right, right. When it came out at first, mm-hmm. I of course, oh, this will be really good. And I watched a couple episodes and for me, it just, Fell flat. And I thought, oh, what a disaster. These really great mm. people are in this, and it's just not working. It's not working. It's not working. I don't understand. I it. think that was a little growing pains. Yes, it was growing pains for them and growing pains for us. But it didn't take yes. them more than a half a dozen episodes Correct. before they had that show rocket.
1: Yes, rocking and just and and yes,
0: loving every character yes and- yes
1: good for you uh that's great that you can say that on both ends because i think that's a lot of things with art is that we have to be allowed to be you should be vulnerable and just go with it take a leap of faith you might not you might be too judgy when you go in
0: you know yes. we all and, are we, all we are. only really made that leap of faith because like there was nothing else on so we turn it on and sorry, right we'll watch a few of these it's yeah. like oh this is really good
2: mm-hmm. this is
0: actually really smart it's not dumb
1: humor it's smart humor it's very smart very profound very human and i hope at some point you watch ted lasso it's the feel-good show of the universe oh I'll have to. it's watch so it good 10. you're gonna have to watch it on your um laptop i think or your okay. desktop because just get apple tv for a month or something
0: Okay, <laughs> like what I did, but like yeah, the, our problem is well, yeah, we'll just get another streaming service for a month, and next thing you know, the bills come in for the streaming services, and we have six of them, right? I,
1: I'm in the same boat. I think everyone is. That's why you got to. I almost like what I do is I try to put an alarm in my calendar.
0: I'm on my phone to yeah. cancel. Yeah, cancel really. The, and I, and I mean, have to I, do that with every week. Part of it for us is because you and I do this podcast. Yes, and you know we have to be researching. We've got to be I watching know. stuff all the time in order. I know. To be on the cutting edge of the of the know. Uh, arts and culture experience that's right right um, which we which try is, to deliver on a weekly basis
1: with our cutting edge analysis
2: <laughs>
0: i tell you down having vietnamese coffee when you podcast that's the way to go oh, man. yeah good idea i wish i thought of that um did you happen to watch notorious um we have not seen it yet and okay. um, i i mentioned to sheila the other night that uh we we uh we need to see it and we're going to see it but she started watching a show called billions. Oh, and billions is a show about a guy who made a squillion dollars trading right after the plane crashed into the building at 9/11 mm. and becomes a super rich guy with his super rich stock trading um team and everybody thinks he's a crook and then you have the fbi agents and they're out to get him for insider trading Mm -hmm. now the chief fbi u.s attorney's wife and dominatrix slash dominatrix Mm -hmm. is also works for this super rich stock trader guy And they have what she calls a Chinese wall between what he does and her marriage, Mm. which of course adds to the, the interest and action. I don't think it's a great show. Sheila's more enamored with it than I am. I think it would be better if it had better actors and writers, Mm. but you know, it's okay. It's, it's watchable. And we've been watching that uh, instead of watching notorious but tell me well, that's okay. a little bit about Notorious and I'll try to watch well, it. Well, you week.
1: know what? I'm going to save my notes for when you do watch it. Okay. Um, I- I'll save those notes. I think it's
0: worth it. I think it's better when we're on the same page. But, well, we that, did watch. It's such a great movie. Yeah. We did watch a new film. I think you've watched it as well, which, you know, it had been probably weeks since I had seen a coming of age story. <laughs> okay, maybe days, since I've seen a good coming-of-age story, but we watch The Tender Bar, and that is a coming-of-age story of all coming-of-age stories. Um, it's based on the 2005 memoir by uh, J.R. Moringer about growing up in Long Island um, with uh, an Uncle Charlie and... Mm-hmm. Um, this bar that he kind of grew up in and around and about his adventures growing up and becoming a man and becoming a writer. (laughs) and It is a tired script. It is a tired story. We've all seen a thousand times, but um, Ben Affleck is very, very good at it. Ty Sheridan is is very, very good at it. The whole ensemble cast um, takes what I think is sort of prosaic material and brings it to life and it's kind of magical. It's kind of lovely it is and kind charming. Of magical. Yeah. And if you hate Ben
1: Affleck, then you have to see this movie to see why we some of us love Ben Affleck. He is to a me, very this- good
0: actor, clearly. Plus he has, as Ben Affleck wigs go. And <laughs> I mean, which is like every movie. I know. Uh, but this is a particularly excellent wig he has. In this
1: movie. Mm-hmm. It was a good wig. It was it, everything, the costume design, the set design, the cars, it's a fantastic movie. And one of the best lines in it is every 11 year old kid would want a, uncle, needs an uncle Charlie. Charlie.
0: Yes, of course.
1: And he is just delightful and the kid's amazing and some of the problems are amazing. And it just
0: it's about an hour and a half long. Which is Charlie great. teaches him things like when he's a little boy, like you get your beer and you put it over here, and then you put your <laughs> pack of butts over here. And, mm-hmm. I mean, he's just like every parent's worst nightmare is having your kid exposed to this man. Well, um, the kid doesn't have a uh, doesn't have very many
1: male role models in person. That's right. His and father so, is
0: just a voice, a yeah. voice known as the voice on the radio. He's a radio
1: DJ, almost like a shock jock or something too. I think. And maybe play some
0: music too. So there's a, yes. you know, he's a terrible father there. and knows he's a terrible mm-hmm.
1: father. Yeah, he does. And Uncle Charlie, for whatever reason, he's there because you know what half the battle is—just showing up sometimes, yes. just being around. Yes. Maybe you don't have to be there 24/7 but you've got to be the general mood. And um you know his mother has her ups and downs but it's just a beautiful yeah, family. Yeah, they he needed story. to work
0: on the mother character a little bit more. Yeah. I think it could yeah. have been it could have been developed a little further. I love the scene where Uncle Charlie gives his convertible Cadillac convertible to uh JR. It's just a, outside the bar. He goes outside. He's got yeah. the key. Yeah, And there I, is this Cadillac <laughs> convertible that just stretches for miles it's so big right and i also like...
1: love the i'm bril- oh, sorry the brilliant christopher lloyd i love him so much he plays the grandfather yeah he's one of the greatest comedic actors period and oh, um, it's yes. wonderful and that, that to see that wonderful
0: him in sequence where where he takes the, the boy to the the father's father dad's breakfast Yes, oh, a father-son yes. breakfast or yes. something, and he right? has to He has to tell the kid, I mean, don't think that makes me a good grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I don't think we ever get that confused. But you know what? A bad father, grandfather just sitting there is better. Again, it's yes, the, it, it really captures that feeling of family because the whole family lives together. I love that. You know, I lived with my grandparents for a while. Oh, yeah. It was really one of the happiest times of my whole childhood. It's probably the part that I just... You know, I just loved it. And um, I found out later, of course, my father hated it. <laughs> it's the only time I we owned a house. I guess they probably helped buy it in Winnipeg on Campbell. And um, if anyone's listening in uh, Winnipeg and um, hi, Shauna, if you're out there, are you in Calgary or Winnipeg? I've forgotten now. Um, but he, uh, and I went to uh, Brock Corden Elementary School and that's where the Rudy, the um, I've mentioned Rudy a long time ago, the bully was he would hide
0: and torture us all um did anyway you, did yeah you go we to with our grandparents. Diner when you lived in winnipeg
1: Not i think it's knowledge. gone now oh my god though this is really bringing up something that i've always been on the hunt for um so yeah we lived in winnipeg with my grandparents and i absolutely fucking loved it and i was pretty young some of those memories because my grandfather was still alive and um oh i just loved it it just felt like there was always something cool happening around the house there was always somebody there you know it was just wonderful there's always company. And my sister and I had these awesome, this awesome bedroom. We had the whole upstairs. And our single beds, our little beds, were tucked into alcoves in the wall. So it was like this magical nice. place you could crawl into. And then we would play space. And we had this friend Michael, who was my grandmother's best friend's son. Um, and he would come over on the weekends and we'd play um space and we'd put all the couches. We had a big, huge overstuffed couches up there. It was like an amazing rec room, bedroom. And we would jump on these pillows and, you know, because we didn't have any gravity. <laughs> oh, but there's a thing in Winnipeg. Oh, I wish we had somebody, a historian from Winnipeg, because I've even tried to contact Winnipeg Historical Society. There used to be this park. It was someone's garden or something. And they, you know, you know how in your neighborhood somebody gets obsessed with decorating their yard, like with stuffed animals or... Religious
0: archive, icons, or
1: mosaics. Like your garden is probably the best example. So you're, that's probably why I love your garden. Is because I, we would take a trip down after we would go for dinner. I want to say Happy Valley was a restaurant. I don't know what the hell. And it must have been like a, one of those trends that we were talking about Italian food. And then we'd go drive by this place and had all these twinkling lights. And it was like a fairy world. I thought it was literally real fairies lived there. I had no
0: guile at all I really believed in fairies hey this reminds me that the other day I was going out to the no frills to do some shopping and I got out to the car and this couple was walking by and they saw me and the guy said I'm so happy to see somebody who lives here would it be okay if I went and had a closer look at at the mosaics (laughs) and I said sure of course and I chit-chat with them for a while and the guy said for years your yard makes me happy has made Aww. me happy. Every time I go by, I see some other little crazy detail that that you guys have stuck into your garden, and it makes me happy every time Aww, I pass it. I'm gonna cry. That is so sweet. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, that's you know, it was very flattering, move. and
0: and it's like somebody realized like that's the spirit we're trying to convey with the the way we live in our crazy little house mm-hmm god that's a good story
1: i have another good story for you okay did you did you know david letterman it's just a news bit did you know david letterman has a scholarship fund a program for no, students I not. Yeah. yeah he does and it's only for c students
0: oh beautiful is that
1: genius or
0: what isn't that brilliant of i wish because they're the people who need the help not the a students the a students yes, will be and- fine <laughs> Exactly. And why shouldn't
1: C students go to university too and have help?
0: Well, Absolutely. you know, in today's world, there's a lot of people who really poo-poo the idea of a liberal arts education and universities, and they want people to um, have education that is related to making money, to their jobs, yes. to as uh, specifically as job training, that education Cute. is job training for everybody, yeah. except of course. For them and their families, which they want to give a liberal arts education to.
1: Right. And also, you know, we have to remember that um we, we studied philosophy and art when it still was like an, a reason to go to university. <laughs> we studied art when it was still like it's okay to study art. It's a real, you know, you're not going to make any money, maybe, but to, you know, yeah, I can't even
0: argue with with, with those folks uh, about about that whole topic because if you don't think that education is about becoming a better critical thinker about Mm. expanding your worldview, Mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. I, I can't really talk to you about it. If all you think (laughs) is it's about, it's about training you to make money because really money is what you really worship. Prosperity
1: Um, for everyone. (laughs) So yeah, no, it's, it's annoying. And I mean, again, we're going to get back to the ancient Greeks here because university meant all different um, interdisciplinary topics
0: and for everyone, the city was supposed to be yes. this, and, that ties and I have into to the say, design and architecture too. I have to say that when, when you and I went to university together, mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. when, um, when dinosaurs, dinosaurs were roaming yeah. the, uh, the yep. earth, yep. Um, you know, second, third ice age, I don't know. Anyway, back then um, when, when we went to university, what I recall was it was a pretty affordable kind of experience My tuition. I don't think my tuition was more than $2,000 a year in any of the years that I went to university. There were other costs, books and materials and all of that stuff. But at the university that we went to, the beautiful thing was that if you really needed to earn more money The university made sure they seemed to make sure that you found jobs as technicians (laughs) or there were lots of jobs within the university uh, milieu, which would help you get by, but really someone with a part time job could get through university without an enormous amount of debt at that point. Yes, Mm -hmm. sure some debt, especially if you had to live on campus. Mm-hmm, that would in- mm-hmm. increase the, the need to have a little bit more money. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I know, I lived at my parents' place. I had some car maintenance cuz I had a I drove up. First year was I took that your green up. Datsun. The green Datsun, the B210. Yes, <laughs> it was sort of kind of a fluorescent glossy pukey green. <laughs> it was something else. Yeah, I it yeah, was... I think I think I The first first year I took the bus, there was a special bus that went up to York University. And I think it only took just short of two hours each day. And so, I mean, it just killed the day. And so um, my parents uh, uh, helped me out to get a car, which cost, I believe it was $900 for this, this Datsun. And I love that car, man. I went Mm -hmm. everywhere in that car. The only difficulty was that after a while, once you accelerated to about 40 kilometers an hour or 25 miles per hour, the whole thing would start to shake uncontrollably. (laughs) You think, oh, my God, are we going to fall apart? But as Mm -hmm. you continue to accelerate, you could just accelerate through it. And once you got up to, say, 50 or 60 kilometers per hour or 30 or 40 miles per hour, Mm. I guess you could say, uh, for our American friends, um, it would stop shaking. Mm. And so I drove it for about two years that way until I took it in and had someone look at it because the shaking was getting pretty bad. Mm. And The guy showed me that the whole chassis was no longer welded together. The whole thing was going to (laughs) collapse. So they had to kind of weld the thing back together. Mm. Sheila Very had a cool. nice story that was that was similar to that when she used to drive her dad's I think it was like a 75 ltd I mean you could sleep three in the trunk it was so big it was the biggest car I had ever ever mm. been in and it was it was spectacular mm. and at one point she uh, she needed to replace the gas tank because it was leaking she got a new gas tank And after she paid the guy, the guy said, just don't hit any bumps or fill it up. (laughs) (laughs) Because everything in the car was so rusted, Uh, there was nothing to properly attach the gas tank to. And in fact, in that car, I believe that the trunk fell out on the 401 one day.
1: Oh, my God. The trunk. Oh, that's just rusted or something. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, there there
0: was rust involved. I (sighs) love that car, though.
1: Oh, my God. And she had a
0: St. Christopher on the dashboard hmm nice yeah i like our little motifs meantime
1: Mm
0: -hmm. they've cranked up ozark again
1: yes oh my god i have one more thing i wanted to tell you don't let me forget okay oh should i throw it in first okay um all right so i i watch my real housewives yes and um they've got a franchise in in
0: miami in beverly hills in atlanta of course because there are housewives everywhere
1: yeah and they're going to have one somewhere funny. I can't remember where it's coming up right now. Dubai. That should be amazing. Mm. Um, but the one in Miami has been shut down. It only it stopped in 2013. I don't know why. And I don't know why I never picked up again. But it got renewed now. So they've got a new mm. season out right now. And it's very insane. Um, the elective surgery and fashion and aesthetics are very, very very specific to this show. They're quite interesting. In what way? Um, well, they've got the puffy cheeks stuff and there's a woman who's, I had to look her up. She's only 39, but because of the treatment she has in her face, she looks like everyone who's 70 oh, or 60. So it should, not because of wrinkles, but
0: because of that injection. Because of the work. That, yes. That's That's often the case. You know, uh, I think we live in a culture in which we want to be something that we aren't. We want to be like, Uh, the people we see on TV, and we don't get to see them in real life, do we? We see them um, on TV with the maximum makeup. And right. And also, they're, they're the most beautiful people um, featured. That's how they get beautiful.
1: The women are beautiful. They're gorgeous. They're absolutely gorgeous. And they're very interesting personalities. It's just kind of shocking. It's right now, Madonna, uh, one of my friends, Suzanne sent me a picture of Madonna in front of a poster of Tupac and I showed it to Stay and he goes, Oh, that's Tupac. I said, I know it's Tupac. Who's the other person? He goes, I don't know. He couldn't tell it was oh, Madonna.
0: I feel bad for her, you know, and and for all those people who have felt the need to avoid aging and so to get a whole lot of work to appear that appear to have not got older you know and right. i think there's tremendous pressure to do that in, in absolutely the, in well
1: madonna in her speech her thank you speech last week said that to grow old is a sin and that is true in the business it is a sin right now to grow old and um all i mean tons and
0: tons of which actors is, are doing it which is too bad in a in a sense because in in terms of our um disposable culture it's as if we've lost respect for people who are older and people who are we are have lost aging. respect we um, have lost
1: respect because we they can't people can't stand if if someone an older states person or political person talks slowly then they've got dementia i'm like i hang out with tons of older people and you know what sometimes you got to sit and listen to them my grandmother had an unusual way of delivering a story and you had to go with it it was partly her culture her society and her sure. age yep. and her age. And sometimes she would lose a train of thought. It didn't mean she had dementia. It meant she, at some point, your brain can only take so much information. You have to offload the other stuff. And it's, uh, we, and we don't some, have any. Yeah. Some
0: people in the acting business manage to, um, manage to deal with the age problem really successfully. And I'm not sure why some yep. people do it better than others I think for instance Helen, Francis, Mirren, Helen be, Mirren and
1: Frances McDormand are two people yes, I about two, to say. two
0: people who absolutely I want to watch them when they're 20 I want to watch them when they're 60 it doesn't right matter and let's not say people let's call it what it is females it's not people men don't have to worry about well it. that's that's true there's there's lots right. of Donald Sutherlands out there who mm-hmm. who have a, a happy uh career throughout their right right uh, Right.
1: So and also the other thing is I don't want to shame the, the, the women I'm talking about because they are gorgeous. And I think it's something else. I think we've gone into William Gibson territory where they're not had the surgery isn't making them look younger, although I suppose it is, but it's making them look very unique, different and different, unique. Yeah. It's it's not an it's be it's gone, it's it's transferred, it's gone past aging, it's gone past that. I mean, then you've got someone like Jane Fonda who has a obviously very good um, bone structure, and quite possibly the greatest elective surgeon out there for a massive facelift. I'm assuming that she must have. And you know, it's she still looks like Jane Fonda. It doesn't look like she's not she's not going the route of pre facelift. Because I think what's going to happen next is these these treatments are going to be flushed out. And then the women that are about 50 to 60 are going to go and get this massive facelift. I don't know, I'm assuming that those two things go together. That that will be stage one. we now have the stage one of fillers and collagen and botox and then moving into full facelift. And you know, I'm
0: of two minds because so on, on the one hand if you can get some kind of procedure done that makes you feel better about how you look well, if you could do it, well, what the heck? Why not? Why not want to feel better about how you look? Uh, why not want to feature uh, parts of your appearance that uh, that you think are maybe you'd be more successful or people will look up to you or something? I mean, of course, we all, we all want to have that, right? Uh, but, right. Uh, on the other hand, um, sometimes it seems as if our celebrities who go down that road, often appear as freaks. And why? Because, right. I mean, once you've done it once or twice or three times, I think the amount of changes to your body seem to be more uh, pronounced for the long term.
1: Yeah. I think the thing is, morally for me or anthropologically, I would say it's completely common for all cultures all societies all time frames for people to do body modification it's what we do we wear jewelry um, we pierce our ears and and it, it's every culture in society so i wouldn't want to say that we shouldn't do that and there's elective exactly um, elective treatments that people do in in cultures that we might not realize it's not different than the um, surgery we're doing in north america That's right. I I, I think it's just that we've seen
0: it take it to the nth degree in the entertainment business. And because um, the people who have had the bad work done or the overwork done have been people who are so famous, you know, that they they become the poster children for bad plastic surgery, like Michael Jackson, certainly the poster child for bad or excessive plastic surgery for years. Right, you know, right. like a running plastic surgery joke. Yeah,
1: and I think you know we forget, um, and and as far as the body modification to the nth degree, I mean, we 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 do we do um, genital mutilation in, in North America on men, and then on um, whereas in in some other countries, it's female. Um, mm-hmm. genital modif- um, mutilation and then you've got the so is taking it to the far degree is not also unique to Hollywood because you've got cultures that put lips uh bones in their lips and, and necklaces that elongate their neck and then the classic stereotype is the geisha gash- who um binds her feet so these are things that I don't see as any different than what uh, Madonna or Nicole Kidman is doing um deny as much as they want. We can see their faces or the real housewives on Miami. And it's not that they look hideous. It's that you know with they Madonna. They look so I
0: recognizably different. And so she we really think does it's in weird, this photo. I
1: will I will post this photo. But it's you know there's Madonna who um she empowered girls and women for decades with her her feisty talk back Attitude and Yeah, it's, it's and just songs. too bad
0: that she didn't empower people to age more gracefully. Well, uh, yeah. You know, it, she would still be tremendously successful if she allowed herself to age.
1: Yes, I believe she would be. I believe her fan base would support that. She'll be successful whatever she's doing because she's pretty brilliant, right? She is pretty brilliant and she is supported either way. Um, And again, it's a sin to age. And I guess if you're going to, I understand for keeping your fan base, for keeping your paycheck, God knows that record companies are assholes and movie um, major movie corporations are cruel to women. So I certainly do see why they tend to get this surgery to stay relevant. And, you know, Lee Majors, is it Lee Majors? Is that a man or a woman? Lee That's Remick. Sorry. Lee Remick. Lee Remick from shampoo. Um, she felt she was already losing her. She's been very forthright about her decision. She had a facelift when she was in her thirties, like 32 or something, 35 and her career picked up again. She had been that team mm. young woman, ingenue. when she did that facelift and she, I think she was a single parent Um, And, you know, had this child and she just went, I've got to get a paycheck. She went and got a facelift at before 35 years old, you know, and her career bounced back.
0: Well, you know, this this leads to I I really wasn't going to go there, but we should really talk about a film that we I think hinted at last week when we were talking about the director Frankenheimer. Um, I oh, believe yeah. Frankenheimer directed uh rock Hudson in a film called seconds do you Absolutely. remember that film I, oh I what a movie. creepy scary film that was it very is, much remains for me one of the creepiest films I've ever watched uh, it's I agree I agree and and for those it's who don't know anything fiction, about horror. it, it's yep. a guy who um is he a, was he a criminal I think he was a criminal in need oh, to I don't think so no I don't think so did he need I don't to, he remember had that. to change his appearance?
1: What he did was there was this wonderful company that offered you a whole rebirth experience in the newspaper. He sees an ad and he is cynical. He's got a wife. He's burnt out. He's pudgy. He's out of shape. And he looks at his life, his middle-class domestic life. That's right. That's
0: right. He was a middle-aged banking executive in Scarsdale who, despite his professional success remains profoundly unfulfilled for love uh, his love for his wife Emily has dwindled, and he seldom sees his only daughter, who was relocated to the West Coast and started a family. And so he signs up.
1: Mm-hmm. He the, signs up he, for this great program. Hudson.
0: Right. So
1: they basically sign you up. It's like witness protection, and they you have to sign off on everything. They they take care of your family. They give you, you they make sure that your you know your will is done. You've got to clean up, take care of your house. And um, then you go, and they take you disappear. You You, you disappear. You die. You die. They make they they fake your death. I think if I remember correctly. And then you go and live in their spa, their hospital, and they completely change your plastic surgery. They completely change your whole appearance, and they give you a new a new identity. And he comes out, Rock Hudson, as you say. (laughs) It is beautiful. I mean, who else could? Perfect. It's perfect. You come out as Rock Hudson he comes out it's even funnier he and this ties into what i wanted to mention to you about um the real housewives of miami but he comes out and they give him a new career and his career is an artist of course <laughs> and he's got all these trendy people and parties he's one, got a one immediate, day by the way we should symbol. talk
0: about um the treatment of so-called artists in film because It'll be a hilarious podcast.
1: Absolutely. We should do that. We'll get a mutual list of movies or something. And there's some fun things and there's some sad things. There's all kinds of, I mean, I love the Kurt Douglas story. I love that um about Van Gogh. It's so cool. Plus, you know, there's one that's um about Van Gogh done by William, Willem Dafoe. That'd be worth seeing too, but that's very, uh, that's pretty recent. Before I forget, I want to mention one of the funny things that you will enjoy. On The Real Housewives of Miami, they have a house. They've got some old staff that was in 2013, but they've got some new staff, cast. Sorry, cast. And one of them is this wonderful woman. She's maybe a former model, brunette. And God lover, her if she doesn't, isn't the partner to Martina Navatarola. I hope I'm saying her name right. My father Nav- would kill Navitra-
0: me. Tra- tra- Loba? Navitra- Loba? <laughs> the, the-
1: I can't say her name. The famous um, tennis player,
0: yeah, Martina. Oh
1: yeah, good. Okay, I think it's so Navratilova. Oh, thank you so I, much. I'm
0: probably wrong. No, no you're. She, um, for our you. listeners, She's, please correct the uh, the spell the spelling and pronunciation of Martina's last name.
1: Right, and I think it's the first gay housewife. On, the, on this whole um, franchise. So that's really fun. She's married to Martina. I think we see her once or twice. She's not going to be part of the storyline probably, but she's just in the background. Most of the, the partners and spouses are not, they show up for parties or something, right? But it always gets troublesome when they get involved in this this show. It's all about the housewives. So anyway, but what's funny is that this wife gets, um, they're, one of them is an, uh, an art dealer. Well, it turns out that Martina is a painter now. Oh, really? Yes. And she makes paintings with tennis balls. Of course she does. <laughs> she wax them. She gets them in paint. They don't show us they're making I, I can tell by looking. Um, she must dunk them in paint and roll them on the painting, or she splotches them, or she takes her tennis racket and aims it at the canvas. And actually, they looked really good. They were wrapped in plastic and archived in a storage bin. She was being transported into a gallery i'm hoping oh please sweet baby jesus let there be the art opening of martina's paintings (laughs) but actually i have to tell you out of all the celebrity painters i really really liked her paintings we could do a whole show on celebrity painters
0: hey do you remember just speaking of martina do you remember the um the 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 song amazons by frank yes remember frank she sort of made a career about being yes. the lesbian folk singer. Yes. P-H-R-A-N and a hard mm-hmm. C was mm-hmm. how she mm-hmm. spelt it. Mm-hmm. I just looked up the lyrics to Amazons, just for those who don't know it, because it's among the best lyrics, I think. <laughs> okay. It's Oh, give me a pair of pectorals like Diana Nyad. I want to swim 89 miles. Give me a set of deltoids like Tracy Calkins. I want to be strong like those Amazons. I want to learn to dribble like Annie Myers. I want to learn to shoot like Cheryl Miller. I want to play the Dallas Diamonds and live with Martina like Nancy Lieberman. Strong, 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 like an Amazon. I want to play badminton like Utami Kennard. I want to smash that birdie like Christy Cook. I want to acquire the perfect rough shot, have total control over that shuttlecock. Strong, 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 strong like an Amazon. I want to run in the Boston Marathon. I want to go, go, go like Ellison Rowe. I want to play tennis like Billie Jean King. I want to serve in Bali like Martina can. I want to be strong like an Amazon. I want to smack a ball like ivana gula i love that <laughs> <That's>
1: <laughs> strong right. strong
0: like an amazon okay. i want to oh, learn God. to drive like nancy like, sorry i want to learn to drive like janet guthrie i want to zoom zoom like cha-cha Maldowney. i want to <laughs> be strong like an amazon i want to be strong strong like an amazon and i'll <laughs> see if i can find the frank version and post that on our all right our sounds fun good Page. Great. Sorry, I digress there, but it just came to mind. And we are the Free Association Podcast. Aren't
1: Absolutely. We? Why not? We don't have any rules. That's right. um, hey, I really loved your photo. Um, I posted on our on our Instagram page, and I think on our Facebook
0: page. Uh, I should put it on Twitter too. Of your bending wood. Oh, I wanted to talk to you about that because okay. remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you I was going to try to bend wood and I really didn't have the, the proper equipment mm, set up. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. and you, I think you made some offhanded remark like, oh, a curling iron. Well, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that you did because I did. after I thought a curling iron and I went onto the YouTube and it turns out so- that a curling iron for bending wood is a thing. Yes. Yes. It is a thing, and there's oh, a number awesome. of videos on how to bend wood using a <laughs> curling iron. And so, I because it. I wanted to get right to it before I had a proper setup, I uh, I invested twenty two dollars at a Revlon ceramic core curling iron. Oh inch yeah, and that's a, quarter, a good one, inch and a quarter because that's what you want for your your larger waves and curls. Says oh, I'm so on the box. Well aware. <laughs> <clears throat> and so I bought this curling iron, and I used a little bit of strapping and i strapped it down to my workbench and you know it it works <laughs> but what it's an interesting problem because well first of all every job that you have to do every task in making a fiddle
2: mm-hmm. and
0: for me this is all about can i do it because mm-hmm. i really have no idea if i could do it or not every one of them you have to learn a skill for the whole thing it's just a, it's a skill How after cool. skill after skill you have to How learn cool. and so right now i'm working on learning the skill of bending wood and you can see i've got one of the um uh, what we call the sea bouts which is that little um inward curve and in the the waist of the of the fiddle you might say and um i've managed to bend that i've only broken two pieces of wood in doing it because When you bend wood, you wet it, and then you press it against your bending iron, slash (laughs) curling iron, or whatever you're using, Mm -hmm. and it reaches a certain temperature, and, well, one video I watched said it bends like butter. It does not bend like butter, okay? (laughs) No. You've got this wood, which is like a millimeter thick, and it's wet, and you press it against, and it starts to bend and the amount of pressure it takes to bend the wood is just short of the amount of pressure it takes to crack the wood. How do I know this? Mm. Because I have wasted two pieces of wood attempting to bend it. Where I've, I've, you're bending away and all of a sudden you hear crack and you realize garbage junk. Wow, wow,
1: wow. Okay, so so what I think I'm understanding is that you took the curling iron, bent this,
0: thin piece of wood it looks pretty thin
1: in the photo and then you prop it
0: after you've done that well what what you've done first of all is you've made a form that's the shape basically the shape of a fiddle okay the shape of the body or the corpus Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. the fiddle and you use that to to shape your garland which is the sides of the fiddle and in order to do it In your form, you have four what we call corner blocks and two end blocks. And basically, you've notched out parts, six parts of your form and glued in chunks of spruce. But you've only used a drop of glue. So you want it to be glued to your form, but you want to be able to whack it with a chisel and break Mm -hmm. that glue off so the form will come out. Okay. Then you glue the sides only to the blocks, not to the mm-hmm. form. And in fact, um, what I've done is rubbed the candle along the side of the form that where the blocks are not so that the glue, if any gets over, doesn't stick to the sides. Wow, did you, you, don't you want think it... about yourself? No, of course not.
1: Oh, I have watched great. probably
0: 150 videos and read a book. <laughs> And a website. I have read and researched so much to be able to do this because because each of the tasks is challenging and requires some practice. I've been trying to watch other people over and over again do it to build that comfort level with doing that task. Mm -hmm. And I try to actually imagine myself doing it successfully, which is the same way I do when I'm trying to learn an instrument. Right, um, And so I've got one of the corner boats, or sorry, one of the sea boats made, and I've got it glued in. And today, after this podcast recording, I'm going to go out and take the clamps off it. So I'll have wow. one sea boat that's stuck to <laughs> the form. Yeah. And then I'm going to do the other sea boat. And then I'm going to trim those two. And then I'm going to put in the, the two top boats and the two bottom boats. Until I have a full garland. Mm. Then I'm going to work on the top and the bottom plate. And when they're carved and ready, then I'm going to glue one of them onto the form. And then I'm going to knock the form out. And I'm going to have half a fiddle with sides. Then I just glue the other side on. And using a dovetail, I'm going to glue on a neck. Which little details I have to carve. I have to carve a neck in one piece with a scroll. There is a lot of stuff to do. And I'm not actually sure that I can do it. I really don't know. But, right. you know, I I believe in always be learning. Always be trying to, yes. to learn new things. Try new things. And, you know, I, I watched a set of videos by John Mangan. And in his first video... He makes one thing clear and that is that he's making a fiddle and not a violin and he talks about what's the difference between a fiddle and a violin okay right and of course any old fool can look at them and see they're the same instrument he says the difference is attitude and i totally got that i would never have tried to make a violin because any old fool knows that violins are made by master violin makers
2: uh who have
0: studied in places like like Cremona under under invincible masters who have been making violins for 50 years. And they they like shine the master's shoes for the first two years without being able to touch anything. And then they get to sharpen tools for a year or two. And eventually after years and years, they graduate and they too become invincible master violin makers. Well, there's a lot of voodoo in the violin industry is what I'm going to say. Yeah. And so what Mangun says is, well, Use we don't so have do. to worry about that because we're not going to make <laughs> a fancy hoity-toity violin. Wow. No, 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 no. We're just going to make a fiddle. It's yeah. no big deal. That's right? so clever. It's so just clever. a fiddle. And yeah. it's like, if he's just trained the attitude, he's got the attitude that mm-hmm. I can, maybe I can't make a violin because only a master violin maker right. in Primo Italy could do it. Right. <laughs> Who. A master violinist who is like the next door neighbor of, of like the great grandson eight times removed of Stradivari or Guadarius or somebody like that, right? Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, it is like, it's got a lot of baggage around the mm-hmm. violin industry. And that baggage, you know, it it extends to the point where as if you look in a violin, you can't ever believe the label of a violin, because okay. the violins, the number of times people have gone to, to hoity-toity violin shops saying, "I've got this violin that's been sitting in my garage for eighty-five years," and I looked inside, and it says Stradivarius. Oh my God, well, <laughs> granddad had a, a, an honest-to-God yeah. Stradivarius. I'm rich, mm-hmm. and Buddy in the in the violin shop says, um, uh, "No, no, this was made in Germany in the twenties or right because right. I'll." A huge number of violins were, in fact, made in, um, in like Saxony, in Germany, uh, from the beginning of the 20th century, or maybe even a little bit before that, right up until the late 20s. A tremendous amount. They really cornered the market on student-level violins, which in some cases are excellent fiddles. Mm-hmm. See, that's the other thing. The violin industry... And uh, I would recommend uh, check out some YouTube videos, Uh, uh, two set violins, two is run by two young guys in Australia who were working in an orchestra. They started off um, doing these YouTube videos and it just took off. And they now have like something like 3 million subscribers, Mm -hmm. which basically means they're making a very comfortable living in the YouTube Mm -hmm. business. Mm -hmm. They don't need, they quit their orchestra jobs. They don't mm-hmm. need no stinking orchestra job where you have to do what the conductor says.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: No, no, no. They've, you know, they're doing um, these um, YouTube videos. And also in Australia, there's Olaf the violin maker who has a number of videos and they talk a little bit about this crazy structure, power structure in the violin industry. You know, if in, if you're learning classical music The quality of the violin that you use is attached very much to your status as a beginner, as a student, as an intermediate player, as Mm -hmm. a a novice orchestral performer, as a master soloist. And as Mm -hmm. you go through these stages or progress, as I'm sure you'd love to say, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, you you have to advance to different levels and the violin industry will tell you, Oh, if you've reached this level, well, you now have to go out and buy a violin that costs $5,000 or $8,000. Mm-hmm. And then you get your first orchestral job and you, maybe you need a violin that costs $15,000. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas, you know, old Tommy Gerald used a fiddle that was, had a patched up musket hole in it from the civil war. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a, it's attitude, mm-hmm. right? And that attitude has this whole structure around it in the violin industry. And so to stop digressing, mm-hmm. I could never make <laughs> a violin. But when I saw this guy say, I'm not going to make a violin. We're, do- we're only going to make a fiddle here. And mm-hmm. then proceed to make a really nice fiddle. That's cool. Step by step. And I could see that, well, each of the steps was very challenging I think I can learn each of the steps. And I, I think in a few months, I'm going to be able to have a homemade fiddle. It <laughs> Maybe I have to make another one to make a better one. Okay. Because there's a growth. Um, yes. But the violin industry would have you believe that in order got to it. make one that is really good, you've got to study for 20 what? years. And of you course. Have to- Right. And you have to have that whole heritage and live in the right place and use a certain set of tools and all of that. Not unlike the art world. Not unlike the art world. It's true. <laughs> now, of course, there is there is another force of evil out there in the violin world. Uh-oh. That is the people who want to build things using a technology of CNC cutting which mm-hmm. is basically you plug everything into a computer mm-hmm. and stand back yep. and everything gets cut and carved for you. Mm-hmm. Um, or um, Is that what CNC 3- stands for? Cut and carved? I don't know what it stands for. Oh. I could find that out. Um, oh, or, or the alternative <laughs> is also 3D printing. Oh yeah, I figured that would be the
1: next step. I like how on our podcast, we just like, well, we're Googling while we talk. Well, of course we
0: are because- We have to. Yeah. You know, it stands for CNC is computerized numerical control. There you go. A computerized manufacturing process in which pre-programmed software and code controls the movement of production equipment. There you go. So today, Mm -hmm. mass produced violins- Mm -hmm. are made using CNC machines. Does that mean that they're bad? No. No, I don't think it means that they're bad. But is there value in something that's made by hand by a craftsman in a basement or a garage somewhere? Yeah, I think there is value to that. I think there's something really wonderful about that.
2: Um, But I'm also glad
0: that, that maybe a beginner player who wants an instrument that doesn't sound like shit can buy something that doesn't cost that much money. That's it. You
1: know, I mean, I have two (coughs) ukes. One uke is, is, you know, probably mass produced. The other one was a little bit nicely produced, a little fancier.
0: But the first
1: one means that you spend $25 and you can see if you can stand playing or not. That's
0: exactly right. And there's good and bad things about that. You know, with the uke specifically, the really cheap ukes, the downfall of them is they won't ever stay in tune.
1: Yeah, and they don't last a long time. They 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 stay in tune maybe while you're practicing
0: for a little bit, but yeah, yeah. But are constantly going out of tune, yeah. and so you really in the uke world, you have to get up to you know if you start spending two or three hundred dollars, you start getting into a decent uke, and. You know, a banjo uke might be a little bit more because you've got a couple different technologies. There aren't as Mm -hmm. many people making them. Mm -hmm. But by the time you spend four or 500 bucks, you can get a really, really fine instrument in the ukulele family. Right. Can you get one that's quite playable for a hundred bucks? Of course you can. Absolutely Absolutely. you can. And it's the same with banjos. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I'm going to say that if, if you're really enthusiastic about learning an instrument, it's a lot easier to learn on something that sounds better and stays in tune and isn't difficult to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example would be uh, for a long time, cheap guitars. The setup on cheap guitars, the strings were always so far from the fretboard, they were almost unplayable. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that makes it, well, almost unplayable. But really, if today there's a, a lot more people who are looking to older, cheap guitars as really quite wonderful, as long mm-hmm. as the setup's good. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> an interesting business, the, the musical. Very much so. World. Yes, very much so. But I'm plugging away on the fit. Good, good and i will keep you uh
2: I yeah that's keep good you, that was uh, a good uh
0: updated and if you don't hear any updates it's because i've given up in disgrace which <laughs> no i'm really
1: glad i'm really glad you sent a photo you got a photo on social media and um i'd like another photo now with the, the curling iron and um and next to your work or something and um yeah no that thank you for filling us in because i was wondering how it was going i know you had a lot of work to set up the the workspace so thank you
0: yes i set up the I workspace everyone's gonna then, be curious about this and then and I, sheila really enjoyed this the next thing i did is i went to the ordering machine and i uh-huh. ordered up a lab coat
1: oh good <laughs> now i had practical reasons now, this, for the lab well, coat. Gee, if sheila liked it i could see a whole uh family romantic uh role oh, playing going yes. on there <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, I like if, I, if I
1: had a lab coat, I wouldn't get anything done around well,
0: here. <laughs> you know, if you want, go in the studio and you're going to use power tools mm-hmm. and you don't want to mm-hmm. change into a separate set of clothing, you just put on the lab coat, covers so true. whatever you're wearing. And so true. You go to town, take off the lab coat, hang it up, and leave. And so every day I go in there and I put on the lab coat. And that says Very nice. I'm now in my fiddle making mode i'm in my fiddle making uniform yeah and uh i can go ahead and uh work on the next process
1: very nice stag had a prof a teacher at art school that he wore a smock and a beret it was really adorable he imitates him and it's really awesome
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh i won't hear the end of it when stag sees my lab coat oh yeah that's true uh yeah Um, okay
1: so i thought we might come up with something i uh, we'll talk about it on our own but maybe some kind of gift basket that would be in a raffle for any anyone this would include anyone who pledges today or in the future for our patreon page we'll make a time limit and for anyone who already has pledged on our patreon page what what are we going to put in the basket i don't know that's where you and i have to talk about it okay and that could be open to the united states or canada so right. we'll figure out our 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 system there and what we'll put in it. Maybe some merch. Maybe some I don't know what. Maybe I'll see if I'm if I'll, I'll we'll have to figure it out.
0: Okay. Just an idea I had out there. Um, and I just want to say to our listeners that you know in the last couple of weeks there's been a distressing lack of emails, and we right. need your feedback. <laughs> we need, feedback. We need we to do. hear from you. So, and thank you, Tim, for sending that book list of Elon Musk. So send us your emails to theagency.podcast mm-hmm. at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, also, are you involved in any really uh, time-consuming or highly technical projects? Um, like I'm doing fiddle making. Is there anything wacky that you're doing? We'd like to hear right. about send it. Send us an email and we'll read it on on online, on the podcast online, <laughs> whatever. Absolutely. <laughs> the podcast machine on the podcast machine. Exactly <laughs> it. And so we're going to be closing down the podcast machine um, for this week. And uh, we're going to be back at you uh, next week with more fun and excitement. There's a rumor that we might have a guest sometime, but our guest has been fugitive on the yes, run.
1: I know. I know. Well, we're going to have a lot next month because uh, we're, uh, you know, I'm going to the conference. So that should give us some right material. Lots of but people with ideas
0: a... that they want to talk about. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah all right talk to you soon next week thanks for listening